0: Who's this, this Koopa clown? We gotta talk to that goofball now. I don't think you wanna do that. Why? Why not? That Koopa clown? Yeah. Is one evil, egg-sucking son of a snake. Now, where is that meteorite piece on what? Welcome to To The 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. Smack dab in the middle of the 1990s is when I started, so very familiar with the films of the 1990s. Today I'm going to get into a film that actually came out before I started writing film reviews, although I've had a review of it online for some time. Continuing on with the video game adaptations of the 1990s, we covered Mortal Kombat and all of its sequels and reboot and Street Fighter, as well as the animated Street Fighter movie and Double Dragon in the last episode. Today, getting back to the first of the major film adaptations of video games, at least the first Hollywood version, it is Super Mario Brothers. From 1993, Super Mario Bros. is a PG-rated film. It does have violence in it. The runtime is an hour and 44 minutes. The cast includes Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo, Dennis Hopper, and Samantha Mathis, with supporting roles going to Fiona Shaw, Fisher Stevens, and Richard Edson. The directors are Annabelle Jankel and Ricky Morton. The screenplay credited to Parker Bennett. Terry Runte and Ed Solomon, although quite a few others did work on it, and I'll get into who and why they did not get credit for it in the end as we get to the body of this review. Now, if you think back to the origin of Mario as a character, you know, starting off in the video game, of course, the famous one, the most famous debut, Donkey Kong, back in 1981. Mario wasn't called Mario back then, it was called Jumpman, but... Became Mario later for reasons I'll get into in a moment. He'd become a celebrity pretty much by the time you get into the early nineteen nineties. He was emblazoned all over the place, lunch boxes, pajamas, underwear, bed sheets. He even was the star of a couple of kids' TV shows on at the time. Polls proclaimed Mario, the current generation's cultural icon. He was more recognizable to children of a certain age than Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, or any of the other very popular characters of the 20th century. A bidding war did erupt in 1990 for the movie rights, of course, for Mario to bring him to the big screen. Nintendo, they wanted to sell to a studio that could concoct an actual story from this game that had very minimal characterizations or story elements to it. And during this time, there was a producer named Roland Joffe. He was the Oscar nominated director of very acclaimed films like The Killing Fields, as well as The Mission back in the 1980s. He was actively seeking properties because he was looking to find something of broad commercial appeal that would be a kind of a cash cow for his new film company called Light Motive. Joffe was watching his teenage son during his days in Paris while he was uh, preparing. City of Joy, to bring to the big screen. And his son was obsessed with this one video game. He knew a film adaptation of the video game that his son was obsessed with, and all of his friends were as well, of Super Mario Brothers. That could probably be an across-the-board hit, a surefire thing at the box office. Now, while big studios were petitioning up to $10 million with Nintendo of America to try to pitch their animated film ideas... Jaffe decided to take a different approach than what the studios were doing, so he flew instead to Nintendo's main headquarters in Japan, and he presented an outline to their president, Hiroshi Yamauchi, for a live-action feature, where the Mario Brothers would venture into this underground fantasy realm and save a captive princess. Now, Nintendo, they really liked Joffe. They liked his approach. They granted Joffe and his Canadian producing partner, Jake Eberts, of Allied Filmmakers, the film rights for not $10 million, but a very low ball offer of $2 million, as long as they could retain all of the related merchandising. So Nintendo thought that they could get some good money with the products that were going to be promoting the film. Now, the next challenge was putting the games elements into some sort of cohesive storyline. So Jaffe traveled to Kyoto. He met the game's creator, Shigeru Miyamoto. And Miyamoto, he revealed that... Actually, the inspiration for Mario's name and likeness... was called Jumpman originally, but his name and his likeness was based on this landlord that they had for the company's office in New York, named Mario as well. He gets plugged into this mishmash of elements from Japanese folklore as part of the uh, adventure that Mario goes on. But Miyamoto did not think the movie needed to be a carbon copy of the game, really, so long as it captured a fun, colorful nature, and it similarly appealed to the same demographics of kids and teens and adults with equal measure. Now, tops on the list at that time to play Mario was Dustin Hoffman. Coincidentally, Dustin Hoffman, he had children who were major fans of the game, and he had been previously really trying to acquire the film rights. He was looking into it on his own to try to star. He thought he could star in that film with Danny DeVito, and Barry Levinson could direct. Hoffman and Levinson were both hot off of Rain Man, and they also recommended the screenwriter for Rain Man, Barry Morrow. Might as well strike why the iron was hot to make a very commercially appealing film. But once things seemed to be solidifying in terms of the ideas for the movie, Nintendo of America did step in President Minoru Arakawa, he proclaimed that Dustin Hoffman, he was the wrong choice for Mario. He preferred Danny DeVito to be Mario. Eberts knew if he wasn't going to get Hoffman, he was going to get Levinson, so he courted Penny Marshall to direct. But DeVito seemed much more inclined to play Mario if he could direct, so they decided to offer him. If he wanted to star in the film, he could also direct. But while DeVito was awaiting Morrow's script before he decided he for sure was going to sign on, he did allow his name to be associated with the film in order to lure other talent on board. DeVito's Twins co-star Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was offered the role of King Koopa. He declined, as did Michael Creighton. But Barry Morrow continued on. He was hired on because he had a, a very strong affinity for heartfelt stories, particularly about brothers, as evidenced in Rain Man. Barry Morrow, he was not familiar with the game, so he decided to play it for about a day And through that time, he concocted a very basic storyline. He determined that he was going to make a prequel to what you see in the Super Mario game instead. And what you see in the movie was going to explain how the Mario Brothers really earned their Super Mario Brothers moniker. Although his unfamiliarity with the game, really, other than that one day of playing it, and his realization that, well, you know, most Mario adventures, if you're playing Mario in the game, usually ends with his own death. That had him kind of struggling for a a better narrative that would reflect the game. So Mario crafted this road trip premise, a Laurel and Hardy type brother protagonist. Mario would be the headstrong older brother, Luigi the innocent, naive younger brother. They were the manager and the assistant for their own plumbing business, and they would embark on this quest that would introduce, naturally, the game's elements. The production office found this premise to be just too similar to Rain Man. In fact, they jokingly refer to it around the front office as Drain Man. Eberts pulled Morrow before he completed his first draft because he felt that his take was becoming too dramatic. It was too serious. It dwelled overly long on the romance between Mario and the princess in a way that he felt was just never going to entertain kids And besides, Nintendo had already been involved with a Rain Man carbon copy of a sort in 1989, The Wizard. And that was not necessarily a very big critical success, although it did make its money back at the box office. During this time, Danny DeVito, he decided to pass. He was going to be directing Hoffa, and he had signed on board for Tim Burton's uh, Batman Returns, so he was going to be busy, didn't have time for this. TriStar also departed during this as the distributor and that made way for disney's hollywood pictures now disney wanted tom hanks to be the star in fact they actually had him agreeing to play mario for five million dollars but nintendo disagreed with this they also interjected they thought that tom hanks was coming off of a few box office bombs bonfire of the vanities and a few of his other movies did not do very well at the box office at all. And with such a spotty box office track record, and with him only really being known for zany comedies, they thought that he didn't have the range or the box office presence to pull this off. Of course, he proved them all wrong over the next few years. So they still needed a director, so License to Drive's director, Greg Beeman. He was the first director actually signed on to direct Super Mario brothers and he conceived... Of this alternate dimension, kind of akin to a sword and sorcery realm that you would find in old films, but aimed at a much younger set. It was gonna be much more of a kid friendly version of that. But the distributors they were having trouble really coming up with reasons to finance a full on fantasy flick from beginning to end from an unproven director. So the producers who went to bat for him, they also were underwhelmed because they took in this early screening of Beeman's upcoming movie called Mom and Dad Save the World. And they decided that that didn't do it for them and he just didn't seem the right fit. So they decided to split ways with Beeman. Now looking through a host of other potential directors... They soon targeted Harold Ramis. Now, Harold Ramis was a lover of the Super Mario Bros. video game, so he was enticed, but he wasn't sold on the film's current concept the way that it stood, and so he passed. And meanwhile, they hired a different screenwriting team to try to bring things into shape, Jim Genowine and Tom Parker, and they were hired to add the fun and color of the Nintendo game. The screenwriters fell in love with the game while they were writing this. They repurposed its cartoony mythology into this Wizard of Oz-like fantasy with Princess Bride comedic flair, very tongue-in-cheek, with the plumbers entering into a large pipe and then coming out into this fantasy dimension. And they also decided to concentrate on the siblings, separating both physically and emotionally, and then they would reunify through their combined rescue of Princess Hilde, as she was called in their draft. From her marriage with King Koopa, who is a more dragon-like figure who had usurped the crown of invincibility. And the script was considered well regarded by the producers and Nintendo at the time to push forward. Now, thinking of directors that could handle humor with a defined artistic aesthetic, Jaffe started thinking a little bit more outside of the box for who he wanted on board. He recalled a television show that he had really enjoyed called Max Headroom during the 1980s. So he flew to Rome, where the directors happened to be at the time, to meet its cutting-edge creators of Max Headroom, British power couple Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel, to craft Mario's unique world with that artistic flair. Now... Morton and Jankel's only prior feature happened to be a 1980 thriller called DOA with Dennis Quaid that was funded by Disney as well. But it was a considerable critical and commercial failure. But they had before that and during that an extensive music video and commercial experience that definitely was going to sell them to the distributors even if they had a failure the first time out. Now, Janko and Morton were always sent scripts and included among them was the latest one from Genowine and Parker for Super Mario Brothers. Now, they despised that script when they read it, but they did accept it because they thought this is a concept that they could actually turn into the kind of pop culture phenomenon that really made Tim Burton, which is another director that they feel they kind of fashioned themselves after, artistic flair, very dark but very pop culture savvy in 1989, they could do that with a similar comic book visual style. So they envisioned the film similarly as a prequel to the game, but one that in real life would have inspired the Japanese to create a very loopy, cartoony game based on these real-life adventures. So they were looking at it backwards. So Morton and Janko didn't really like the pure fantasy premise of that script they wanted to bring in much more plausibility much more sci-fi into their approach so they conjured a scenario that explained that there was a meteor that struck earth 65 billion years ago the one that presumably killed off all of the dinosaurs but in this particular history there were some dinosaurs in the spot where the meteor lands where brooklyn is today that pushed a population of dinosaurs into this sub-dimension where they eventually also evolved, along with the animals in our dimension, into a human-like race. And there they discovered that there's this underground portal that connects these two dimensions, the dino dimension as well as that of Earth. And these orphaned brothers, Mario and Luigi, end up finding that portal as well as entering into the modern reptilian realm. Now, the directors hired for their revision, Mystery Dates, Parker Bennett, and Terry Ronte. They were young up-and-comers, not necessarily picked because of their prior writing, but they were intrigued because they had created this mock-up poster that showed a maze of pipes that led to these very sinister glowing eyes in the darkness, and that was the tone that Jen Kale and Morton wanted for their new film. So they hired these young guys, and over several drafts, Bennett and Ronte replaced the childlike fantasy elements with very rational science fiction that the directors preferred. And eventually they skewed more toward a very darkly zany romp like Ghostbusters writing Mario's part with fellow smart-alecky Chicagoan Bill Murray in mind. They suggested maybe Bruno Kirby would be a natural choice to play Mario and John Leguizamo to play Luigi. They renamed Princess Hildy to Daisy, which happens to be, in real life, one of the game's two princesses. Everybody thought Toadstool was just not a very attractive name for a princess. They would make her an orphan baby smuggled from the Dino dimension. Dino Haddon. Into a New York convent. Now, during some of those revisions, they were playing the video game along with everybody else, and they thought, you know, really they needed to include gamers. The gamers would be disappointed if they didn't have more tie ins to the game, so they shoehorned over a hundred game elements into their story, creating a very, very bizarre world to try to explain how there was a correlation between the events of the movie and what you see in the game. Now, the producers were worried with all of these revisions, how the script just seemed to be escalating in terms of the scope. This was really blowing up the budget. So they ordered rewrites to try to add more scenes in real-world Brooklyn, where it would be much cheaper to produce than the dino realm, including a rival plumbing operation called the Scapellis, as well as a major excavation premise there and kind of a, a mob subplot as well. So Morton and Jankel's Talent Agency, they recommended to star in this film, not Bruno Kirby, but Bob Hoskins. Because first he was available at the time, but also he had a very nice working class everyman quality to him that the directors actually really admired. Now, Hoskins resisted actually taking the Mario role for months and months, and he wanted to avoid, at that time, permanent pigeonholing into just doing kids' flicks because he had just done Who Framed Roger Rabbit as well as Hook, very high-profile kids' films. But they offered $2 million, something you couldn't really say no to, as well as the chance to act opposite Dennis Hopper, who also had signed on at some point during the process. That was too much for him to eventually refuse. Now, Hoskins was unaware That the film was based on a video game, but his kids clued him in soon enough when they heard about it. But they also wondered why their dad, who couldn't even program a VCR, was now chosen to represent the consumer electronics icon of their generation to the world. Now, the directors at that time wanted more revisions to the script because they wanted to capitalize on Bob Hoskins' dramatic range. So they brought in a new team of screenwriters, ones that would make it less jokey and a little bit more emotionally involved, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenette. They happen to be specialists in exploring strong sibling-character relationships. Clement and Lafrenette, they delved into Luigi's resentment, particularly of Mario as the surrogate parent, while replacing the smart-alecky humor with satirical takes on action flicks, including a Die esque explosive Brooklyn Bridge Climax, in fact, they in one of their drafts, they actually wrote in a cameo for Bruce Willis to appear. The final scene would have the Marios approached by Japanese executives who wanted to turn their real-life adventures, so to speak, into a video game. Now, this appealing script was the one that lured in talent like Dennis Hopper, as well as Fiona Shaw, Shakespearean actress, of renown at the time. Many actors were auditioning for Luigi, but the directors considered Bennett's original suggestion of John Leguizamo. They went out, they saw him perform Mamba Mouth in Chicago, and they found him very hilarious, very authentic, very much of appeal to play Luigi. Leguizamo, he also had other offers. He passed on joining the TV skit comedy show called In Living Color at the time. He also passed on launching his own sitcom, but He also turned down the role at the time, famously, of Tom Hanks' lover in Philadelphia. He claimed Tom Hanks was not cute enough to be his lover, he said, so they cast the role eventually with Antonio Banderas in Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Leguizamo and Hoskins, they worked very well together. They spent a lot of time together. In fact, they rehearsed their Brooklyn accent together for quite a while to sound like they came from the same place. Now, after creative differences, they replaced Wolf Kroger as the hired set designer with Blade Runner's David L. Snyder. Kroger had been following very closely the video game's aesthetic, but Snyder followed his own instinct. He wanted to base everything that you see on the screen on what was possible with the locations that they had. So he gave Dino Hatton a very cyberpunk aesthetic, very similar to Blade Runner in certain respects. The director still very uh, much admired that aesthetic. New York, as if it were observed while on mind-altering drugs. The directors also wanted a somewhat monochromatic look to Dino Hatton as compared to Earth with a lot of blues and reds. Snyder toured for his set design deserted American mills and factories. He wanted to cheaply provide the set structures that were necessary to provide the backbone of what he wanted to achieve. Co-producer Fred Caruso, he happened to have worked for some time in North Carolina for Dino De Laurentiis, and he introduced Joffe to the defunct five-story Ideal Cement Company plant in Castlehane. And its new brutalism style for this factory resembled to Joffe very much an Aztec temple, providing ample space for not only all of the sets, but effects labs and prop making and everything else that they wanted to achieve. So Snyder used existing concrete structures and catwalks for hanging all of the scenery, well, on multiple levels, up to five levels, with the ground level comprised of Koopa Square, the busiest center of the set. On the downside, though, the facility did have poor ventilation. There was a lot of airborne industrial dust, and there was no suppression to all of the high heat and humidity of North Carolina. It really seeped in. It was very uncomfortable for the actors. They didn't want to spend any more time than they had to within the confines of that cement factory. Hundreds of extras did come in. They played the city residents. Many of the shops and streets happen to be allusions to the game elements as well. A lot of the, the names of the stories that you'll see. Snyder tried to base Dinohattan specifically on the mythic Gershwin-esque view of New York through the Japanese perspective. And due to the water shortage presumed in this world, Snyder designed Brooklyn as green and lush as compared to Dino Hatton, which was devoid of vegetation. It was an arid place where only lizards could really feel comfortable. Now, for the game's mushroom elements, because mushrooms are very much a prominent factor in the Super Mario game, the directors and writers, they started brainstorming. This backstory of an old king who was deposed by Koopa to actually come to power who would devolve into this conscious fungus that spread throughout Dino Hatton. Now, representing the movie's fungus, there was a lot of fishing lure as its base, and hot glue for the body consistency, with bread mold as the model of what they wanted to achieve. Now, many in the crew, they were sick of having to pin all this yucky fungus all over the set. They hoped that Roland Joffe would step in at this point and put an end to this disgusting angle, but. Jaffe at that time was trying not to ghost direct at this stage. Jaffe happened to be a director he preferred when the producers did not step in and try to tell him what to do. And so as a producer, he determined that he was going to be the kind of producer that he would have liked if he were a director. Now, during this time, directors brought in somebody they were very familiar with, Max Headroom co-creator George Stone, to come in and contribute additional ideas as the writers determined that they needed to break off from the directors to form a story from what they had. Now, in concocting all of this, things got even more expensive. These set pieces forced them to acquire additional funding through a pre sale to Disney to distribute. But Disney demanded a very child friendly script revision. This was skewing way too adult. It was going to be way over the heads of kids, they thought. So they wanted everything to be redone so your typical kid could really understand it and be entertained by it. And the reason why they wanted to do this was not necessarily artistic. It was because they actually wanted to build Mario Brothers-related theme park attractions at their Disney World and Disneyland sites. So Jaffe, he decided, well, we're getting to the point where we actually have to shoot this thing. He contemplating actually stepping in at this point and writing a new screenplay himself, but the directors begged him not to because they had finally found a script after all of these revisions that everybody seemed happy with. But Joffe knew that Disney was not going to be pleased by this, so without knowledge of the directors, Joffe hired Bill and Ted co creator Ed Solomon, along with Ryan Rowe, to try to soften things up with the script, with a revision, without changing the plot because the sets and costumes were nearly complete. They didn't want to change any of that. So Solomon came in, he altered or excised. All of the adult elements he could. Strippers, hookers, junkies, all of that stuff was completely removed or it was changed very dramatically in the script. He jettisoned especially expensive set pieces like this Mad Max-style Mario Kart sequence that was scripted in there. The Brooklyn Bridge finale even found itself cut completely out. And the directors, not knowing all of this was going on, they were finally handed Solomon's script about two weeks prior to the start of filming. They considered quitting at that point, Knowing that this was just never going to work, this was not the movie that they signed on to do, but they felt professionally obligated to try to carry through all of their very complex ideas. They felt that they might actually save the film if they could be around to make adjustments while they were shooting it. Morton ceremoniously, though... Very disappointed. He went out and burned his meticulous storyboards in the parking lot because he felt that they no longer were going to have relevance for the film that they were going to be making in the future. Morton did wake up early each morning to draft all new storyboards for all of the various units who were shooting concurrently and to retain the cast and crew, the directors, instead of telling everybody that this was out of their control, they actually went out and promoted all of these changes that Disney had wanted to make to their film. The ones that they actually hated deep down as beneficial to all of the cast and crew to try to keep them from fleeing. Now, after falling behind dramatically, the producers did contemplate firing the directors, but there was nobody else at this point who fully knew what what movie that was actually trying to be made here. The best they could do was whatever vision still retained in the minds of Morton and Jankel. So they decided they weren't going to fire the directors, but instead their hand-picked cinematographer, Peter Levy, that was basically a warning shot to the directors to not make too many changes. So they replaced Levy with Oscar-winning cinematographer Dean Semler. Now Semler came in and he immediately questioned why he was even hired because immediately he was handed very specific shooting, lighting, lensing instructions, ones, things that he normally would be the person who chose how to perform. There were a lot of really cool costumes around here. The eight-foot-tall Goombas, in particular, dino-humans who devolved to reptilian form, very hulking masses that were dumb enough to stay loyal to Koopa. They were originally intended to make just a tiny appearance in this film, but they actually turned out so nicely that their appearance was really beefed up. They were greatly expanded to become kind of part of the scenery all throughout the film. 35 technicians were called in to build this animatronic dinosaur called Yoshi, based on the very cartoony version in the video game. Yoshi was uh, kind of a baby T-Rex. He required nine puppeteers controlling its 70 distinct cables to perform 64 different movements. But frequent script changes still kept coming out all throughout the production. It left everybody always feeling unprepared. The crew jokingly called the ever-changing production a mutation, very much like the fungus in this film. Or using the devolution chamber that actually factors into this film for each revision. Dennis Hopper, he came in. He started yelling at these directors every time the changes came out. They changed lengthy speeches. He had spent weeks rehearsing without any kind of consultation. He called these directors control freaks who valued nobody else's input. And they were even out of sync with each other. The constant tirades from Hopper further delayed the production. It was very costly for him to drone on and on. So the directors decided, you know... Let's just start encouraging everybody, including Hopper, to just improvise whatever they thought would work. So after Solomon handled additional revisions at the request of the directors, he ended up departing as they started doing all of this improvisation. Runte and Bennett, though, sometime later, they happened to be visiting the set. They wanted to see how things were going, and Jaffe called them in. He rehired them. He saw things were getting out of control with everybody doing whatever they wanted. So he wanted them to come in and perform mid-production rewrites. But really, he didn't want them to come revise the entire story. He just wanted them to be called in because this production was going way over budget. And so he called them in really to do a hatchet job on their own story to remove all of the costly elements from the script and replace them with things that were going to be a lot less costly because this production was out of control. Two actors that actually didn't mind all of the improvisation were Fisher Stevens and Richard Edlund, who play Spike and Iggy, kind of the henchmen for King Koopa in this film. They loved actually inventing the zany dialogue. In fact, they uh, wrote an unused rap number, although it does exist if you find it on the web. You can find the lyrics as well as a little snippet of it here and there. Their characters actually were going to meet a uh, a less-than-kind fate. They were scripted to devolve into Goombas, but they convinced the directors that they actually they should evolve rather than devolve. They should become super smart. And during that education, realized that they have actually been manipulated by Koopa all along, and they will decide to ally with the Marios. Meanwhile, Hoskins and Leguizamo, they were very discontent on what they signed on for. They started binging Scotch. They smoked a lot of weed. They wanted to cope with all of the troubles that were going on around them. Leguizamo was always intoxicated in fact he he during one particular stunt a driving stunt it resulted in the Mario Van sliding door slamming onto Hoskins when he put on the brakes a little too fast resulting in Bob Hoskins breaking his finger so they had to put a flesh-colored cast on Hoskins hand which is actually visible if you look for it during certain scenes of this film a stumbling Leguizamo later he sprained his ankle and he was unavailable for two days so you know There was a lot of inebriation on the set that was causing some problems. Leguizamo actually says the one thing, the one positive thing that came out from all of this is that he started a romance with one of his co-stars, Samantha Mathis, during the shoot. Now, she happened to be dating Nicolas Cage at the time, but he stole her for this time. Leguizamo, he, uh, he'd bought a Siberian husky puppy during this shoot. He named him Luigi in commemoration for taking this role. Now, Luigi ate these expensive earrings that Leguizamo had gone out and bought for Mathis as a... As a I love you gift, but uh, Leguizamo was very worried about this. He started giving the dog laxatives until he eventually got them back. It was all for naught. Samantha Mathis actually ended up dating River Phoenix during the shoot while she started also doing another film during reshoots, The Thing Called Love. Now, Fisher Stevens, now he happened to be in a relationship at that time for a few years with Michelle Pfeiffer, but he started a dalliance with this 17-year-old film extra named Jamie Golightly. Meanwhile, Michelle Pfeiffer, who happened to be visiting the set on occasion, she soon caught wind of what was going on, and she split with him. Although Fisher cites his reticence to commit uh, Pfeiffer's rising stardom, uh, her introversion versus his extroversion, as well as their bicoastal distance as factors as to why he strayed. Meanwhile, a uh, very clean and sober Dennis Hopper, he bought a, a five-story sandstone Masonic temple in Wilmington to try to turn into an art studio and acting school, something that remained actually well after the filming of Super Mario Brothers. Meanwhile, Lance Henriksen, who was only here as a favor he did for Gail and Hurd, was a, a friend of Jake Ebert's. He came in for a one-day shoot to play uh, Daisy's father, the Fungus King, back in human form as Bowser, although that's very confusing because Bowser's a bad guy in the game. But Lance Hendrickson met his future wife. She was a makeup artist working there, Jane Pollock, during that one-day shoot, and uh, he be- she became his second wife. But everybody on board did realize that all of this could not result in a very good movie. In fact, the directors knew what was going down, so they felt humiliated enough as it was. They decided to skip press interviews for Super Mario Brothers, which Dennis Hopper called the first intelligent thing that he had seen them do. Hopper referred to the producers, really, and the studios who started intervening more and more as the Hydra, because originally he had two heads telling him what to do, and then four, and then eight, and then everybody was telling him what to do. Everybody had a vision, but nobody in particular had control over this thing. After their allotted 10 weeks, the producers stepped in. They ordered several more weeks of second unit direction done by Dean Semler. Roland Joffe himself, as well as a few other crews, were brought in to try to save what they could of the film without the director's involvement at all in fact the directors were even shut out of the editing phase the producers were going to go through with it on their own as well as with editor mark goldblatt but the dga the directors guild of america did step in they demanded the reinstatement of the directors but they were not given very much to work with it was a very frustrating experience because they wanted to edit it digitally but they had these very old editing machines that they couldn't really use and so the turmoil continued on throughout the editing phase as well but the producers, they pretty much had it mostly their way in the end. Despite it all, of course, test screenings, as you would expect, drew very poor marks. It had a hard-to-follow story, so the producers had Ronte and Bennett come back. They wrote a prologue with this very rudimentary digitized animated intro that almost nobody seems to like. Several teams performed second-unit sequences on top of that to try to deal with some of the issues with it making very little sense to audiences A uh, loads and loads of additional adr looping to try to make all of these pieces fit together and the previews for critics still they were canceled they didn't want to take any chances of word getting out because they wanted to have a big opening weekend and so even parker bennett's mother who attended one of the previous screenings proclaimed it as the worst movie she'd ever seen and Nintendo, seeing all of this, contemplated, actually, maybe they should just buy out the film. Maybe buy it out completely and just shelve it so that nobody could see it. But they determined, well, that's a big financial risk. It's better to let it go out and get a big payday and just let it die in theaters soon afterward once people started seeing it. But unfortunately, Super Mario Brothers never did have that big payday. They didn't really recoup their money. It's actually debuted at a very lowly fourth place In its opening weekend for the pop culture icon of that generation, you would think it would make a lot more money, but it soon fell out of the top ten by week three. It grossed a paltry $20 million off of a reported $48 million budget. In Japan, though, they were hoping to recoup some money there. They had a big gala, big opening there. The cast went there, too. Buddhist monks, they even prayed for the success of the movie, although in vain because the film's success fared little better in Japan as well. Everybody got a big paycheck out of this, but hey, that big paycheck also was determined to not really be worth it for most people in the end. Many of the actors, the directors, they found it even harder to get gigs after this. Morton and Jen Kale, they were dumped by their talent agency. They had to return to commercials, and they really stayed out of feature films, at least until Jen Kale's 2018 romantic drama called Tell It to the Bees. The creator of Mario Miyamoto, he calls the film, charitably he calls it fun, but they tried to shoehorn a little too many of the game elements that hurt the storytelling, although I feel like it's almost the opposite they tried to do too, but with the storytelling that didn't have anything to do with the games, and I think people were just lost. Jake Ebert said that uh, he probably was the wrong man to bring Super Mario to the big screen, and it has always remained, at least until his death, the biggest regret in his career. Hoskins was even more vocal about his feelings towards Super Mario Brothers. He called it the worst thing he ever did. A lot of expletives whenever he talked about it, that the idiot directors, they had arrogance masquerading as talent. Dennis Hopper, who was a little bit nicer about it, even though he had a very difficult time making the film, he said his three-year-old son, he loved the movie, but asked why. He was always playing evil characters, including the evil lizard here, King Koopa. But uh, Hopper replied, Well, he did those things to buy him shoes, and his son, after seeing this film, said he didn't really need shoes that badly. Super Mario Bros., you know, it does expand the game's surreal world, but it does lack a quality story. Trademark characters, they scarcely resemble their pixelated counterparts. If you're a big fan of the game, there's very little here. That would lead you to believe that the game and the movie are really in the same universe whatsoever. It doesn't capture the same appearance. It doesn't capture the same spirit. It doesn't have that fun aspect to it. I think most viewers, you're better off just playing the Mario video games. Because even just playing it for 30 seconds has more entertainment value than the totality of this 104-minute misfire. But despite all of that, Super Mario Brothers has, as almost everything that people see when they were young and see it again when they're older, especially if it's as weird as this film. It has gained a very small but very fervent cult following. It is very bizarre. It has a very deconstructionist qualities to it that make it very weird and very fun for people who observe it as this kind of oddity, this, this weird thing, and even come to appreciate it for what it was trying to achieve. Ed Solomon, one of the screenwriters credited to this film, he kind of compares this cult aspect to it. You know, kind of watching Super Mario Brothers is kind of like a kaleidoscope. All of the fragments that you see don't really form a complete, satisfying picture, and but all of these colorful elements still make it interesting to observe, and that's why people tend to like the film, despite its awful qualities. Now. I don't grade films based on that. I grade films based on storytelling, and the storytelling in this film is just atrocious. And that's why I could only really give the film one and a half stars out of four, one and a half stars, meaning I do think that Super Mario Bros., for most people, is going to be considered a very poor movie. And yet, I do admire for what it was trying to achieve. It was trying to do something different. There was no other video game adaptations to compare to. They were really going out on a limb to try to make this movie that would appeal to movie-going audiences. And yet, what results is both fascinating and terrible at the same time. So, depending on what you're looking for going in, you might have a good time kind of observing it as this completely unique entity that somehow got made out of a lot of good intentions that somehow did not go well together. You know, the directors and the producers and Nintendo and Disney and all of these other people who had a creative voice in this had completely different ideas of what they wanted to achieve. And the result is this mess, this glorious mess called Super Mario Brothers. And that's why I can only give it one and a half stars out of four. But if you're somebody who's inclined to like really bad movies or at least are fascinated by movies that could have been good if not for the fact that studios meddled i do think that this does at least merit a look from a historical angle as well so i hope that you enjoyed this historical look at super mario brothers there actually is a fan site called smbmovie.com you can find a lot of a treasure trove of information about the making of this movie in fact they, they kind of champion it as a, as a movie that is worthy of reinspection, inspection re-evaluation That includes spearheading kind of this fan-restored extended cut. Technically called the Morton Janko cut, but uh, they really have not fully endorsed this. But it intersperses footage that was discovered on this pre-release working copy VHS tape that surfaced on eBay back in 2019. Elements of that got restored and it was edited into, mixed with the DVD elements or with VHS elements, into its own extended movie. 20 more minutes of footage that actually flows pretty well i actually watched that version as well and you can find that very easily online if you want you can write to me i can i can tell you exactly where you can find this it's at archive.org somewhere but if you have trouble finding it reach out and i will tell you where to find it in 2012 there was a fan fiction web comic sequel that was made with bennett you can find that at smvmovie.com as well in 2014, Super Mario Animated Film was announced. It was going to be done with uh, producer Ari Arad, but uh, that never quite came to fruition. But in 2018, of course, Universal and Illumination Entertainment, they joined forces with Nintendo to sign on to do an animated Mario film to be released in December 2022. So sometime... At least at the time of this recording, in the following year after this recording, the animated version, the 3D animated version of Super Mario, finally coming back to the big screen after many, many, many years Nintendo was disinterested because of their experience with this film. Chris Pratt voicing Super Mario and a lot of other big stars as well, although that carried its own controversy. But anyway, whether I cover that film or not, well, it depends on whether there is any allusions in the 2022 film to this film. If there is, I will go ahead and review it right here on To the 90s and Beyond. I hope that you enjoyed this look back at Super Mario Brothers. It actually was very fun. And if you have your own thoughts on Super Mario Brothers... Whether you really like this movie or you really think it's terrible or whatever aspects of this movie you want to talk about with me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and my Instagram are all there if you want to get in touch, but email is the best way. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, well, let's talk about a film that actually came out two weeks after Super Mario Brothers and is actually one of the reasons why they think that Super Mario Brothers did so poorly at the box office is because this particular film and all of the hype surrounding its release leading up to it was stealing so much of Super Mario's thunder because it also deals with dinosaurs and if you're a big fan of films of the 1990s you know you're way ahead of me from 1993 Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park based on the Michael Crichton novel of course One of the biggest hits of the 1990s will be covered on the very next episode. So I hope you're looking forward to that as much as I am on getting involved with the making of that film. But until next time, thank you so much, everybody, for listening and joining me as we travel to the 90s and beyond.